Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Mark and Mark, Daily and Hamilton, Thing One and Thing Two, here to talk about what we love to talk about on Thursday nights, and that's Formula One. Today is March 13th, 2021. Can you believe it? I can't believe that we're halfway through. Sorry, did I say March? I meant May. I mean, that just goes to show you that uh, I'm completely out of sync with how fast this year is progressing. I mean, this week went absolutely so quick. I mean, it only seems like, you know, like yesterday or two days ago when we sat down to do the Spanish Grand Prix recap show. And here we are, another weekend's upon us. Alas, no Formula One, but we'll 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 make it work. We'll persevere and we can push through to another weekend. But how are you doing, sir? I'm doing fantastic. And you know, it's crazy. I was lucky enough to get my first vaccine uh, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago. And, and it was something I wasn't probably expecting until probably June or July. And you know what, that lifted my spirits and emotionally, it put me in a whole new state. And then the good news is so many of the people that I know in BC and British Columbia and the greater Vancouver area started getting their vaccines this week. So it feels more than ever that there's some light at the end of the tunnel, which is yep. fantastic. And I think what's going to be really exciting if you're a Formula One fan is if you live in a country or near a circuit that hosts a race in the back half of this year there's a real a very real possibility that you might be able to attend a race in person and i think for those of us that maybe don't have that opportunity watching an f1 race when there are tens or a hundred thousand people in attendance is a much greater spectacle than it is watching a race when those grandstands are empty. To me, empty grandstands are preseason testing, no matter mm-hmm. how great the action is on the track. So I can't wait till our listeners have the opportunity to get back to races, and I can't wait till we can see the races with those packed grandstands, with people waving the flags of their favorite teams, with their banners, with the barbecue happening, with the fireworks, all of that spectacle. I cannot wait. And I think what's exciting for me potentially is and I keep looking at that date on the calendar which is, you know what, Montreal is obviously not happening this year, which is really sad for a lot of reasons. It's the right thing by Formula One standards. But I keep looking at that calendar and I look at October and I look at Austin and, you know, we've got some of our listeners that are going to COTA that are going to Circuit of the Americas. I keep thinking like, is that a possibility? Is that a possibility? (laughs) And, you know, it's like June, July, August, September, five months out, like maybe that's something that could happen for us this year. So I, I, I keep I keep looking at that in the future. But I think emotionally I'm in a pretty good place, man. Thanks for asking. And you're right. There's no race weekend this year, but that doesn't mean there isn't a lot to talk about. Well, exactly. What also makes me feel good is mailbag. And again, the listeners have stepped up, had some wonderful uh, messages and comments and just uh, tweets and everything. So I just want to dive uh, right into it. Um, First emails from uh, Ricardo Borges. I hope I'm pronouncing that. Um, Checking in from Portugal. I have to admit that when I saw this, I did a double take because I saw Ricardo. I thought Ricciardo, if you kind of like, uh, you know, pronounced the long way Daniel Ricardo so I mean it's still excited we got the email it's just uh, I did a double take I'm like oh okay that that would have been pretty epic if we had an email from that way Ricardo. too highly of us that <laughs> f1 drivers are emailing our gmail account but go on yeah exactly anyways uh, Ricardo has a couple of things he uh, weighed in he uh, weighed in on uh, Mazepin uh, Monaco but the one point that he raised and I wanted to get um, your opinions on this is uh, regarding uh, Yuki Sonoda so anyways um he has to say, uh, where's the dra- Japanese driver at this stage? After a very promising preseason, he is lacking to live up to uh, expectation with struggles with the car, crash in Imola, DNF in Spain, and that episode with the pit box where some bad things were said. Did we put the bar too high or is he letting the pressure get to him? 
That's a, a really good uh, question. I, th- I think, obviously, he had an outstanding debut at uh, Bahrain. And then the second race in Imola, that was uh, pretty tricky. I mean, what with uh, everybody having adventures off the track. I mean, even Lewis ended up in the gravel and somehow managed to keep his car mobile enough to, to pull himself out and rejoin the, 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 the race. I mean, that was uh, pretty amazing. But yeah, I think that Yuki has had some struggles the past uh, couple of races and I don't know. Maybe we have put the bar a little bit too high based on what we saw in the very first race of the season. But I'm interested to hear what you think about the young driver from Japan. I think it's a fantastic question. And I think the real challenge for him was his debut performance was so solid for him to finish in the points in his first contest. And and realistically, it's a car that's capable of being in the points, but you don't necessarily expect a rookie pilot to bring kind of a a backmarker B team into the points in your first efforts. Uh, I'm not worried. I, I think that making that transition from from formula 2 and and from formula 2 because he finished third in the formula 2 championship last year is i think it's a monumental effort and and i think we've heard a lot of analysts in the past talk about the fact that it's not necessarily the straight line speed of the formula 1 cars that are a struggle for drivers to adapt to but rather it's the mechanical grip and the forces in the corner and learning the tires that's that proves to be the most challenging piece. And I think it's not something that you can develop a sense of in the simulator. It's not something that you can develop a sense of and improve by talking with your engineers and the mechanics and all those kind of pieces. Like you literally just need to have as many reps in this car as possible to become familiar with the tires, to become familiar with how the rate of degradation works, to understand the mechanical grip, to understand how the car works and the chassis works in different conditions, all those kind of pieces. And at the end of the day, I think a rookie driver like Yuki was really... He was put in a bad position because he entered the sport in a year when they shifted to three days of winter testing. He, as much as anyone, could have benefited from four days, six days, eight days. Like Those additional days would have been monumentally important for his development because going from Formula 2 to Formula 1 is a monumental step. No matter how talented you are, I'm not worried. I, I think ultimately... He's he's not a disaster. He's got a points finish. The confidence is there. I'm also very happy with the fact that he's demonstrating that there's some alpha characteristics to his personality, which I don't think I expected to be there. I think come out some of his swear words and some of the lashing. I like <laughs> to see that in the driver a little bit. He's frustrated. He's angry. He's emotional. Those are good things. I'm not worried. I'm not worried at all. And I think by the midpoint in the season, he'll be regularly contending to be back in the points. And again, you look at Lance Stroll's start in Formula One and It's slightly different because he made the jump from Formula 3 to Formula 1. He skipped the Formula 2 step. But early on, his biggest struggles were learning the tires, learning the grip, learning the mechanical um, characteristics of grip and cornering these cars. I think he's going to be fine. I'm not super worried, but I think it's a great question. What about you? Yeah, I I don't have very much to add to that. The the one thing that uh, you brought up, which I thought was really interesting, I was going to bring this up later in the show because I wanted to talk about Sergio Perez, who addressed this uh, specifically, was just the lack of testing. 
And I was just thinking, well, who does this uh, compressed testing schedule now affect the most? It affects the the young rookie drivers coming in uh, into the sport and also the the drivers that are switching teams. So if you're staying put, you probably have very you have less to worry about going from one year to another. So you you have a, a young driver like Yuki who's uh, you know, coming fresh into Formula One. He's got everything to 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 learn, everything that uh, that that it, it's new to him basically, and he only has a couple of days to learn it all before you go to the first race. And I think that's uh, another factor, like you so rightly uh, pointed out. And that is um, it. It really is becoming an issue. And uh, we'll talk about uh, what Sergio had to say a little bit uh, later in the show. But hey, uh, and just at one point yeah. on that because you just triggered something in my mind <clears throat> that I think is pretty critical. One, a lot of the drivers and the team weren't happy with three days of winter testing this year. And again, they all agreed to it. Like they mm-hmm. all agreed to three days of winter testing. And oh I yeah, absolutely. Ultimately realized that there's some real knock-on effects to that. But I think next winter, I will be very curious to see how much testing they get, especially as they're moving to that 2022 spec car, which is going to be fundamentally different than the way, what they have this year. Because again, the 2021 cars are very, very similar to the 2020 cars. And to your point, and I'd never thought about this, those that really were impacted by the limited winter testing schedule where the rookies that weren't driving these cars last year and the drivers that were in the Formula One championship but were in a different car. So I think it'll be interesting to see if the teams are able to rally Formula One and the FIA and Liberty about expanding winter testing next year, because I think three days was too much. And again, for those of you that are listening, winter testing is usually a period. In the past, it's been as much as basically two weeks of uh, testing and shakedown. So the teams, they go to a remote location, typically Barcelona or Bahrain or somewhere like that. And they basically have two weeks to run the cars and do shakedowns and do testing, help the drivers get familiar with the new chassis, with new tires, all that kind of stuff. But this year, as a cost-cutting measure they only did three days of winter testing so each driver only had three sessions in that car before they went off to the first race weekend so if you're wondering what we're talking about that just provides a little bit of background and context well, you look at some of the drivers that we've said have uh, been struggling so far out of the gate uh, Sergio Perez is one Sebastian Vettel is one Yuki Sonoda is another one Nikita Mazepan Mick Schumacher to an extent these are all new drivers in Formula One this year or guys that have switched teams so it's a uh, it certainly had a, a big effect Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, next email comes from uh, Richard LeBlanc. I think Richard is in Toronto, if I remember correctly. Anyways, this is a wonderful and massive uh, email full of wonderfully uh, thought out and um, and uh, written uh, questions and uh, comments. So we have three choices here because literally, you know, Richard, just an FYI, this is basically a show outline. We, we could talk about this, uh, all three points uh, at length here. So we, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you choose and then I'll, I'll read it out. So um, topic number one is what he calls 
ham goats. Number two, yeah. Number two is the real ham, and number three is the real botas. I know, I know, you're a sucker for anything uh, Valtteri botas. A- anyways, which one will it be? Uh, no- number two. Number no, two. No, 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 no. Number one, the one that got the laughs out of me. Okay, the the ham goat. Okay. Uh, anyway, so uh, Richard has to say, uh, you addressed this tired debate last winter, and I've been stewing over it ever since. I agree that it is useless and academic to debate whether Lewis is the best driver on the grid, or the best driver of his generation, or the greatest of all time. He is objectively all of the latter. He has, under the application of the current rules, soundly beaten his opponents in the turbo-hybrid era, save Nico Rosberg. There are certain records that remain to be broken in terms of consecutive polls, race wins, podiums, etc., that Lewis has not yet achieved. But these are foot notes in comparison to the achievement of seven F1 championships. However, I believe the debate needs to shift to the circumstances. The true issue, in my opinion, is the formula and the FIA. They have catered to Mercedes dominance without sufficient evolution to the level of the playing field. That life is not fair is a boring platitude. However, F1 fans have literally been forced to suffer through eight years of Mercedes domination that has become stifling and tiresome. When Mercedes uh, broke out in 2014 and the following seasons, the only race worth watching was the Rosberg-Hamilton duel that played out as both cars finished 20 or 30 seconds ahead of the field. I am no authority, but it seems to me that Bernie Ecclestone would have understood the damage this have could have done to the sport and would have found a way to introduce changes to restore some balance given Mercedes' obvious advantage in building the, the novel power unit. We are eight years on and the teams are now only catching up, but no car in the grid can match Mercedes' pace. And, in fact, we do not even know what the true pace is, only that the engineers can turn up the engine to whatever level is necessary to catch and beat any pretenders. So, to reiterate, perhaps this debate should be shifted to whether the FAA has done the sport a disservice by allowing the patently unfair technical advantage to continue pardon me, unabated for so long. It's a long one, but, uh, you know, to get the full points, I think you have to go through the entirety of uh, Richard's uh, uh, Richard's thoughts and his comments. So uh, what do you think? You, you look like you're thinking very carefully in uh, you know, trying to come up with a response to that. Yeah, I, I, one, I'm processing, but also I don't know that we're necessarily deserving of that listener's articulate um, interpretation of the last seven or eight years of... Formula One history, I, I think that is an incredibly, incredibly well summarized and, and laid out. Well, you should see, say, you should read, I'll let you read the other one. I mean, the, the points that he makes about Hamilton, the real Hamilton, and then also about the real Bottas, equally as good, just a fantastic email. Yeah, I, and, and I have some thoughts. So one, I, I don't disagree with really anything that he's spoken to. And, and I agree that the Mercedes dominance has been problematic for a lot of reasons. And I think for the listeners that are newer to the sport, and we know that there's so many of you out there and we welcome you and we embrace you because the sport needs you. But the real criticism of Formula One leading into, well, even this year has been that you've had a single team that has so overwhelmingly dominated the sport at every turn without even the slightest the slightest indication that somebody else might be able to compete for a championship short of i would say brief brief moments of brilliance from ferrari in 2018 and 2019 before they were effectively caught cheating right so i i don't disagree like it's been bad for the sport i don't agree necessarily that if 
Bernie Eccleston was still in the sport, that he would have fundamentally implemented changes that would have favored the field at the detriment of Mercedes. It's it's not the way the sport's necessarily structured. You can't you can't simultaneously unilaterally impose regulation changes at the at the power unit level or the aerodynamic level. Um, at that level, like it's it's something that has to be a collaborative approach, and there needs to be a, a degree a degree of agreement between the teams and Liberty slash Formula One and the FIA. And the reality is, if it was possible to unilaterally or bilaterally impose changes on the sport for the betterment of the other nine teams, I think we probably would have seen it. In fact, I I give tremendous credit to Liberty for immediately recognizing what the state of the sport was when they effectively took it over in early 2017 and began the process of implementing changes. And I think one of the things that they probably don't get enough credit for is they were able to work with the teams on a new Concord agreement in a way that generated relatively little friction. And to be totally honest, in the past when the teams have been Working on developing a new Concord agreement, there's been so much friction that the sport itself has almost been torn apart. So I actually give I give Liberty a tremendous amount of credit. I don't think that they could have imposed changes within their first year or two of ownership that could have created the parity that we all want to see. But I think that they've laid the appropriate groundwork. And I don't think it's fast enough for some of our longstanding fans, but I'm kind of curious to hear what your perspective is on this one as well. You know, it's interesting. I, I think he raises a lot of uh, good points. And the one that really stood out for me was the the one specific, uh, specifically, pardon me, about uh, Bernie Ecclestone. And, you know, like you raised, uh, you know, it isn't that easy just to implement ways um, sort of just across the board uh, unilaterally, like uh, I guess was being suggested. But the thing is, Bernie, in, in some respects, he just always... I don't know if he would do what uh, you would uh, maybe consider was best for the sport. I think he always did what was maybe ultimately best for Bernie. And if that also uh, benefited the sport, then I think he would have gone with it. But it kind of got me thinking when I first read this that would he have had a, a limit to something like that? And I'm not really too sure because, I mean, we have seen other periods in Formula One where we've seen other teams dominate. I mean, uh, McLaren back in the 80s and the 90s and Williams at different times. And then we had that historic run with with Michael Schumacher back in the late 90s and early 2000s with the Ferrari. But the thing is that all those sort of dominant eras all sort of naturally kind of they, they kind of ran their own course. Right. And, and, and eventually just, uh, you know, the other teams caught up or people moved on or retired or, or whatever the case may have been. But the thing that's unique about Mercedes is that even though that there's, there, there's uh, more, I don't want to say parity, but the gap between themselves and uh, the Red Bull of Max Verstappen is closer now than it has been at, at any time in the past couple of years. I mean, I guess you could go back to 2018 when Ferrari was, uh, I guess, at their zenith in this era when, they, you know, Sebastian was mixing it up with Lewis and winning races. And then occasionally, you know, and then uh, Charles uh, was winning some races there as well in 2019. And then Bottas always winning races in there in that in that era as well and, and still is, of course. But that is just, uh, it's interesting because when you think about it, there doesn't seem to be any indications that this this uh, era of Mercedes dominance is going to come to an end anytime soon. And I, I just, I, I don't know what Bernie would have done differently. I mean, it, it is something, 
I've really been sort of tossing around in my mind the past couple of days. And I know that hindsight is twenty twenty, and I'm kind of leaning towards the fact that that you know the the point that Richard is making. I think it's actually quite valid. I think at some point that if um, and I think maybe that's a little bit different because you know viewership and interest seems to be going up. I don't know how much that has to do with uh, you know um, uh, Liberty's increased marketing and the exposure of Formula One in the United States and uh, Drive to Survive and all that. But the one thing that I keep asking myself is if, if things had stayed the same and listener or sorry, listenership, uh, viewership and just interest across the board started to decrease and Bernie was in, uh, still in charge, would then if he tried to st- intervene and try and implement some sort of change? And I kind of leaning towards that probably he might have. I think he would have. I think if it started hurting the bottom line of Formula One in the pocketbook, I think that's where he would have stepped in. What do you think he would have done? Well, that's the thing. I mean, Bernie sometimes had a, a bit of a flair for the dramatic, and that, that's where I'm not sure. Like, would it have been something overt and uh, something that he could have uh, implemented from the sort of the management side uh, that uh, he was uh, doing as the rights holder and all that? Or would it have been sort of these sort of uh, backdoor power broker moves, you know, phone calls to, you know, the you know the, the powerful in the FIA and Formula One and try and force through his agenda, sort of a.k.a. house of cards, you know, something, something kind of like, you know, sort of political machinations and things like that. And, and, and that's how I think he may have got something done. And, you know, I mean, we, we can speculate and talk about it because, you know, number one, it's it's obviously a, a lot of fun. But, you know, it's number two, we, we can never prove any of this. But I think he would have maybe tried to have, uh, put something in. If it, if it looked like any one of those teams in the past, Williams, Ferrari, McLaren, whoever, if it looked like it was going to drag on nigh on a decade, I think he might have tried to do something one way or another. I, I really I, get that feeling. I totally agree. And I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But I think if Bernie was effective at anything, it was the backroom deals. And whether they were transparent or above board or even necessarily legal, that's often how he conducted business. And it makes me... Eh. I recall now a moment three or four years ago, and this was prior to Red Bull signing an agreement with Honda for Honda to be their engine supplier. But at the time, Red Bull was receiving power units from Renault, and they'd had a longstanding relationship with Renault, but that relationship had effectively run its course. And there was a huge amount of friction. And Christian Horner and the entire Red Bull organization made it very clear that they wanted Mercedes to be the supplier of their power units. And Mercedes' perspectives, like, we're not legally, contractually, or from a Concord Agreement perspective, obligated to provide you engines, and we're not about to start feeding our engines to potentially our chief competitor. And Bernie, and whether it was because he thought that if Red Bull was running Mercedes power units, it could create more parity, and it probably would have, to be totally honest, or whether he just didn't like the leadership team, Toto, et cetera, at Mercedes. He, at the time, was putting a tremendous amount of pressure on Mercedes to start supplying power units to the Red Bull team. And the way that he started twisting the knife in a lot of ways was he was very, very, very involved in the production of Formula One um, television broadcasts. And I don't know if you recall this, but at the peak of the disagreement between 
Bernie and Formula One and Red Bull and Mercedes, there was a race in Japan, and it was a race where I believe Mercedes finished 1-2. And again, this might be more of an urban legend, but if you go back and watch the race, like it's factually true. Mm-hmm. The Mercedes cars didn't appear at all on the broadcast, and it was because Bernie had basically said, look, if you're not willing to play ball contractually with working with Red Bull, we're just going to take you off the broadcast. <laughs> and that's a big problem for Mercedes because all of their sponsors pay to put their logos on the car. So they appear on television when you're winning races. So it was just kind of one of those ways that Bernie would kind of twist the knife and work those backroom deals. But yeah, so he may, he may ultimately have found a way to achieve greater parity, but it probably wouldn't have been through a collaborative approach that brings all the teams along the journey of coming to that same conclusion. It would have been more forceful backroom oriented. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. though. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to save one of these ones because they are sort of like evergreen questions. I think I'm going to pick up one of these ones again uh, next week. Okay, next question comes from... Uh, Alyssa, and this is another good one. It kind of dovetails nicely with the the email from Richard. Anyways, uh, Alyssa has to say a uh, quick mailbox question. I'm new to F1 Gen DTS and wondering if fans loved or hated Michael Schumacher when he was dominating. I'm starting to feel a little uncomfortable with the way both fans and often in the F1 media talk about Lewis Hamilton. It just feels really hostile. I understand wanting more competition, but it really is feels over the top. Even big media outlets are constantly crediting other things with his success, openly hoping he will lose, and even saying things like maybe he might possibly be the greatest of all time, it's hard to say. I live in LA, and while LeBron gets plenty of hate, I can't fathom anyone from ESPN implying that LeBron might not be the greatest of all time, or one of the greatest of all time. Everyone seems to absolutely love Michael Schumacher, and I'm wondering if he was treated differently when he was racing than when Lewis is. Uh, Do F1 fans just not like winning? Is this racial? Even the people from the UK seem desperate for him to lose. Great question. So, um, you know, I was a fan of Michael Schumacher back in the day, and, you know, when it came to Schumacher, you either loved him or hated him. And there, there was no middle ground when it came to, to Schumacher. But she raises a couple of re- really good pre- uh, points in there. And I saw that you really, uh, you know, threw your hands up there when she made the LeBron ca- comparison. So wh- why didn't you pick up on that? I know you're, you're dying to speak on that. You know what? Fantastic question. And super, super excited that you reached out and asked this question. I think you're right. I I think when Michael Schumacher was in the sport, he was dominant, but I don't think he was necessarily disliked for his dominance, but I think he was often disliked because of his racecraft and he was an ultra, ultra, ultra aggressive driver. And so I don't think people disliked him because he was a German driver. I don't think they disliked him because he was winning championship. Now, the funny thing is if you go back and talk to anyone back in the nineties and the early two thousands, like, Oh, do you watch formula one? Like, Oh, I used to, but I stopped because Michael Schumacher always won. Well, that's BS. And you just didn't watch formula one. Mm-hmm. Or you talk to people now like, Oh, I was a big Michael Schumacher fan back in the day. Like, Oh, what was your favorite race? Like, nah, I can't actually remember any races <laughs> that he raced in, yeah. but I think you're right. Like, I think he was, I think the disdain for Michael was, or for Michael Schumacher was very different. It was again, not because he was a champion, not because he was German, not because he was white, not for any of those reasons, but simply because if he was you a polarizing a- figure. Yeah, he was polarizing. And I think he was polarizing because of what he did on the track, not necessarily what he did off the track. I think in the case of Lewis, and I think this is a really astute observation, and I 
I actually believe it's something that we're less aware of in the US and Canada is that especially in the UK, there are a couple of very specific tabloids who have individuals that cover Formula One that probably have no business covering Formula One, whose entire agenda is to bring down Lewis Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And I believe some of it is probably racial. Uh, Some of it's, I would suggest probably quite a bit of it is racial, unfortunately. And I, I definitely agree. And she makes this wonderful kind of analogy about ESPN and LeBron James. And I'm a huge, 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 huge fan of the NBA and LeBron James. And LeBron James is in an interesting, a very similar an, analog, or analog to Lewis Hamilton in the sense that he came into the NBA just a couple of years before Lewis Hamilton came into Formula One. Mm-hmm. He's very, very, very socially involved. He's very socially conscious, but he's also very, very, very self-aware. And it's interesting because in the US, LeBron James gets an awful lot of flack, despite the fact that as a human being, as a father, as a husband, he's never stepped a foot wrong. Likewise with Lewis, like, you know, at the early part of his career, he was young. He made He made a couple of like, I would say misjudgments off the track just in terms of personal behavior and things like that. But by and large, he's never really stepped a foot wrong, but I think he faces some of the same criticism that LeBron gets. But from my perspective, I just, I keep looking at Lewis and you know what? Maybe you don't love him. Maybe you're not a fan of Mercedes. Maybe you're frustrated because he's run off seven championships and maybe he didn't deserve that seat, blah, 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 blah. But as long as he's been with Mercedes, he's literally done everything you could have asked for him to do on the track. No mistakes, amazingly consistent. Off the track, no mistakes, amazingly consistent. So maybe it's partly because he is socially progressive and some of those folks in the media have who have the ability to get a message out through a, a newspaper or a broadcast or whatever don't necessarily believe in his social justice, more progressive messages. I, I don't know, but I see it and I hear it and it's especially, especially uh, acute in the UK for some reason, despite the fact that that's where it's from. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And uh, I was thinking about this too. And like, and I've said before that I would like to, s- it's not that I didn't want to say that I don't want to see Lewis win this year. I want to see somebody else win. But the thing is that Me if too. the competition is, is is close and he still wins, and um, you know, I, I'm still fine with that. I mean, I only don't want to see Lewis win because I think it's time for somebody else to. But I mean, if he's still the best out there, then he deserves it, right? And I mean, I have the absolute greatest amount of respect for Lewis Hamilton and what he's done in Formula One, it's it's absolutely amazing. And the fact that he's been such a good driver for so long, it's it really is uh, remarkable. I mean, we can go back to, as Richard said in the previous email, that sort of tired debate about, uh, you know, whether he's the greatest of all time, is he the greatest of his uh, generation, etc., right? I mean, as I think he, he pointed out, he is all of the above, right? And it, it's just... Um, I'm I'm almost pretty much done with this conversation. I mean, yeah, like me like just in general. I mean, he's a fantastic driver. Yes, some people unfortunately don't want to see him win, and for all the different reasons that you uh, so uh, properly pointed out. And I wish that the discussion could just move away from that and just enjoy the what we're seeing on the track right now because I'm really loving watching this this, this battle going on between Max and Lewis that we've seen over four races. I hope it goes another 19, and you know you could 
throw in that, uh, you know, the, the wrench that say, what if they have like a, a Rosberg Hamilton incident like they had in Spain or it, at Spa, you know, that that one incident that could take this very tense but very sporting rivalry that these two drivers have and add that sort of, uh, you know, flame to the fire, just, just, just really set it off. But, you know, at the end of the day, if, if Lewis wins title number eight this year, I, I'm okay with that. Like I say, I would prefer to see somebody else win, not because I don't want to see Lewis lose, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's just time for a change. But you know, L- take it for Lewis what you want. You know, a- it's for what it's worth. I, and I totally agree with everything you said. And I, I'll just add so we can wrap up this point. Again, fantastic question. Thank you so much for reaching out. Lewis is in a tough position because he races in an era of the world where drivers and athletes and celebrities have a different type of platform than they've ever had before. And when I talk about a platform, I'm talking about accessibility through social media. Michael Schumacher lived in an era where if he didn't want to be disturbed off the track, he could vanish into the countryside, into the mountains, and he was off the face of the planet. And people were cool with that because that's simply how the world was back then. Mm-hmm. With Lewis, he's 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 in this really tough position because he has the best car, arguably, in the history of the sport. So the expectation is that he wins, and he does win every single year. So he's criticized for winning because he's got the best car. But if he didn't win, he'd also be criticized. And then from an accessibility and a social media perspective, he he has this platform and there's a tremendous amount of pressure on him to leverage his platform for social justice and socially aware messaging, et cetera. And he does that. But if he didn't do that, he would also be criticized for not leveraging his celebrity <laughs> and his status. So he's just in this really difficult position that I think a lot of modern athletes are, which is you've got this, you've got this group of alleged sports fans that are like, Hey, shut up and drive. Like, I think you guys probably remember this with LeBron years ago, which was shut up and dribble from this far right conservative commentator, right? Like they're in this challenging position where, you know what, if they did just focus on their craft and they stayed quiet on socially, socially conscious and socially aware issues, they'd be criticized. And if they don't comment, they're criticized. He's just in this tough position, Yeah, uh, to be totally honest. Yeah, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Exactly. Anyways, guys, we're not worthy of these uh, wonderful emails. I mean, we turned this into like half a show just from three, uh, three, three emails. I mean, that's just how spoiled we are. Anyways, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Total Wolf is going to weigh in on what uh, he thinks is the state of the, um, I guess you could call it Red Bull rating Mercedes for uh, you know, brain power for their new engine program. We'll do that in just a moment, so don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, well, welcome back to the show. So, Total Wolf says that 15 staff and an empty factory are not enough for Red Bull to start building basically competitive power units by 2025. So anyways, uh, Toto uh, had to say, quote, we have about 900 people working in Bricksworth. They approach 100 and they got between 10 and 15, mainly manufacturing staff, no performance. And in that respect, if I were to build a new factory, I would also start like that. Between hiring two handful of people and having a full up and running competitive engine factory, there's quite a long way to go. I think Red Bull can do it with the resource that is being put in, but Mercedes and the others have been in the sport for many decades building the structure. So 50 guys in an empty building site construction is not going to be sufficient in order to be competitive in three years with a new power unit. Having said that, we're taking them very seriously because they are a great team and have the finances to do so. But if we know one thing in Formula One, that it needs time, no money can accelerate the learning curve, end quote. So yeah, c- certainly that uh, that last portion of the quote, ask Honda 
they they know that a hundred and ten percent. I mean, when they came in the sport back in or came back into the sport in what was it twenty fifteen. Yeah, they were a country mile behind everybody else in terms of uh, performance. But it's interesting the way that he's sort of downplaying the, I don't want to say the quality of the the, the people that Red Bull has lured away from uh, Mercedes, but more the type of uh, the, the, the the people that they've uh, lured over to their new engine program. More more sort of hands-on people rather than sort of the, the, the brainiacs, the nerds that are going to design and, and be the, I guess, the real brain power behind the, this, uh, this engine program. I, I almost feel a little bit ashamed because when we were discussing the story last week about the fact that, wow, <clears throat> two weeks ago they'd recruited one person away. And, oh my gosh, now they've recruited a dozen people and we're waving our hands in the air. <laughs> like, what's going on with the culture in Bricksworth? But I think he does a really good job of putting this into perspective, right? It's like, hey, we lost 15 people. We have 900 people working in Bricksworth, and Bricksworth is the small town in the UK where Mercedes develops their power units. It's about 20 or 30 minutes away from their core factory. But yeah, he puts this into perspective, right, which is Mercedes has 900 people at the facility where they develop their power unit. They've lost 10 or 15 that's nothing. That's that's a fraction of a percentage of the total workforce. And ultimately, he also puts into perspective, which is currently, and I'm not necessarily sure how he knows this, but Red Bull have 100 full-time staff working on the power unit that they're trying to get ready for 2025. And what's crazy about that is we don't really even know what that power unit's going to look like yet or what the characteristics of that power unit are going to be. So they can't be doing anything meaningful yet. Mm-hmm. And the reality is the power unit that they're running this year, next year, and the year after is pretty much set in stone and i think a lot of the heavy lifting that they're doing right now is that engine's been developed in japan the facility that's been developing that power unit is based in japan so really they're just bringing all of the the brain trust and the ip over and setting up shops so that they can start building slightly modified future variations and iterations of that power unit but he's absolutely right in fact the message he has here is not only we're not worried about losing the 15 guys But Red Bull's in a position where they need to be worried about having enough people to be able to develop an engine in time for 2025. It was it was an interesting twist on the story last week because I think we came in panic, panic, panic. Mercedes (laughs) is in big trouble. And Toto's like, nah, cool your jets, boys. There's no issue here. Yeah, you know, I I think obviously he's he's always going to downplay it. But, you know, when he um, when he puts in that light, it it really kind of makes it sound like it is absolutely no big deal that uh, the, the, the people they got are not going to really significantly impact the operations of of either team to be quite uh, uh, quite frank but certainly very interesting and when, when you kind of put it in that respect that you know they've got 100 people for the Red Bull engine program right now and they're certainly going to have a lot of work to do in the next uh, couple of years i mean they are going to get a little bit of support from Honda in the meantime but uh, yeah they they've got their homework uh, you know piles of it in front of them or else the the engine that they have in 2025 might be more akin to what fred flintstone had in his car (laughs) (laughs) other than uh, what uh, what they might be expecting of course i'm being a little bit flippant there hey moving on to the next one this was uh, kind of stood out and this was a comment by liberty media ceo greg maffey who was talking about the cost cap and uh, you know this is quite funny i'll just read the entire quote says, quote, Bernie Ecclestone and, and Max Mosley after the 09 recession tried to get a cost cap in and couldn't get it done. We got there. 
dumb Americans. What do we know about the sport? We say we want to get it done and they laugh at us. Chase gets it done. Full credit, Chase and team. So Chase did an amazing job changing the tone, setting the sport in the right direction, and above all, getting that Concord agreement with the cost cap. Chase remains our non-exec chair and that relationship is valuable, end quote. You know, I, I thought it was kind of interesting because, of course, the the article I saw was a little bit clickbaity. I mean, the, the whole dumb Americans were laughed at uh, kind of thing, but it is interesting just the, the way that he kind of frames it there. He says, dumb Americans, what do we know about the sport? Well, obviously they didn't, they probably didn't know as much about the sport compared to the people that were there before them. But I think what they they understood was the property that they had and the fact that the financial model that was in place was just not sustainable. And that's why I find this whole thing that goes back to last year, the whole cost cap, the whole, co- you know, the, um, in the whole new Concord Agreement, all these emergency uh, cost measures that were put in place in the middle of a freaking pandemic, which at the beginning, I mean, you, you talked to the beginning of the show, you know, now there's light at the end of the tunnel because we're, what, 15 months into this thing. We have vaccinations going on around the world. I mean, back, you know, in, you know, in the spring of 2020, I mean, things were very, very different and they managed to get all these things done. And I, I think that they they really do deserve credit because I have made this comment before that, I think that that Bernie did a really good job building Formula One to what he did over that 40 years or whatever it was that he was in charge. But he took it as far as he went. And I still wonder, I, I sometimes uh, think about this when whenever I hear these cost cap uh, comments come up, that if a Liberty hadn't come back or taken over in 2017 or whatever it was, and Bernie was still in charge or his, uh, you know, his organization was still in charge, where would we have been with Formula One when COVID hit and everything started falling apart? Because I really... When I think about it, I don't want to say that with Liberty, we dodged a bullet, but I think that might be a little bit too extreme. But I think that what they did, that they they absolutely deserve the credit for, because I think that they took what was obviously a very precarious situation, which, you know, all the teams and the sport in general were just hemorrhaging money because they weren't racing, they weren't getting ticket revenue, they weren't getting TV revenue and all those sorts of things that... They took them in a very dangerous uh, position and stabilized it and put a floor in that, yeah, guys, we've we've really hit rock bottom here, but we can build from here and hopefully not sink any lower. I think there's been some, I don't know if you would call it criticism, but I think some of the analysts in the media suggested that the only reason the Concord Agreement came together so easily in 2020 was because of the global economic circumstances yeah. and the uncertainty related to the global economy. I don't necessarily buy that. I think Liberty as a group instilled a tremendous amount of trust in the core members of Formula One, the Formula One family, at least when it comes to the teams that compete in the championship. I think that they have a tremendous amount of respect for Liberty. I think they absolutely buy into the vision. I mean, ultimately, if you look at what was achieved with that Concord agreement, it was a cost cap. And the last time that Formula One and the FIA tried to impose a cost cap on the sport, it was coming out of the 2008 recession. And for those of you that weren't around back then, the the series almost split apart. And again, I, I just bring this up in the background, but June 18th, 2009, amongst incredibly contentious negotiations for the new Concord Agreement, the Formula One Teams Association has announced that it is setting up a breakaway championship. 
June 2009, Ferrari, McLaren, Renault, BMW, Sauber, Toyota, Braun, Red Bull Racing, and Toro Rosso have announced that they are leaving Formula One to create their own championship. Like that's that's where we've come to where we are now, which is that the teams are collaborative and they're absolutely involved. And I think they trust the vision that ultimately Liberty has for the future of the sport. And again, last year was unique, right? And you make this great point about the fact that early on the sport was hemorrhaging money and they're hemorrhaging money because they have a huge dependency on the revenue that comes from TV deals. But if you're not racing, you don't get that cash. So last year, one of the reasons why Liberty was in the teams as well, right? Like it ultimately, like the, the, the calendar may have been condensed. It may have been really challenging from the teams from a logistical perspective, but it was in the interest of everyone involved to stage as many races as you could, even if there was nobody there, because the more races you were able to put on the calendar, the more TV revenue you were able to cash in. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen recently as well, a lot of criticism from folks within the sport, like, hey, racing 23 races races a year, 25 races a year, it puts a lot of strain on the teams. You know, it wasn't Liberty that unilaterally agreed or decided to do 25 races. Like the 25 races was agreed upon by all of the teams because they saw the net benefit of the TV revenue and the ticket revenue that would be associated with those additional events. I can't even remember now what the original question was, and I've gone on this crazy tangent, so I'll throw <laughs> it back to you. No, it was it was just basically the uh, the, the comments from Greg Maffei just about the, the whole dumb Americans oh, yeah. not knowing anything about uh, about Formula One, but I, I just go back to the original point. I think they knew what they had in terms of a, a property and how valuable it was and how scalable the sport is totally. in terms of uh, you know building it in, in certain areas of the world that remain untapped or underdeveloped US, market. The yeah, United the U.S. States. for once. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't think that uh, Formula One is completely out of the woods just yet. I mean, the one thing that I think is amazing is in all the turmoil that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't lose any teams. I know that it was very touch and go with Haas. Williams, I still worry a little bit about, but maybe less so than Haas because they have the the new owners with Derelton Capital. So from a financial standpoint, I think Williams is a little bit better. Haas, I still I still have some significant question marks about uh, just, uh, you know, how, how solid this team is and, you know, how committed Gene Haas is to Formula One and all that. But I, you know, I, I go back to what I said uh, right off the top here. I, I think they do uh, deserve the credit. So let's. I, I, oh, sorry, I just want to add to this as well because the finance and the economy of Formula One is my favorite subject in the world, and I don't want to spend too much time on this. But I, I totally agree with those comments that. I think there was a lot of skepticism about Liberty and how they were going to be able to bring the teams together. And again, when I talk about skepticism, it goes right back to that same traditional old guard British press. Mm. And the old guard British press has a disproportionate voice in the world of Formula One because so much of the sport is based in that country. The other thing I think now too that probably hasn't been the case in the past, especially coming out of the recession in 08, 09, is that we're in this global economic kind of asset bubble and i think probably now more than ever sports teams are highly valued um, as an asset and i would suspect that if any of the formula one teams became available today i think there would be a huge amount of demand to buy into the sport if the sport is going to continue on this upward trajectory in terms of viewership and revenue and global exposure i think the fact that there's only 10 teams mm-hmm. makes them incredibly valuable and to be totally honest 
I honestly believe that the best possible thing for the sport is if Haas exited the sport and allowed somebody more astute at ownership and management was able to step in. And again, Haas has demonstrated that he can run a world-class racing organization in terms of NASCAR, but he hasn't been able to demonstrate the ability to do that in Formula One. And maybe that's because of the leadership team that he's put in place there. But I have no concerns that the sport would be able to find a really quality owner very quickly. And it's funny too, like I've heard stories from Ross Braun about when the Honda team was put up for sale at the end of, I guess it was the end of 08. Mm -hmm. And they talked about the fact that they were taking meetings with people that were straight up scammers and pirates (laughs) and had no equity or no capital at all, but they were so desperate to find a new owner. They had to sit through these meetings. I don't think that would be the case now. And I think there would be a lineup of people that would want to buy into the sport. Yeah. I I think that uh, you raised some good points. Uh, I I think that one person that might be interested in buying Haas would I think be uh, Mazepin Sr. I think this whole sponsorship thing that he has with the Urukali, I think it's just sort of a foothold, kind of a you know doorway into Formula One, and I, I wouldn't be surprised totally agree. that if it's terrifying, but I totally agree. yeah, I, I think that if Gene Haas was to say that uh, that he was pulling out, I think that immediately that uh, that, that the, the Mazepins would be the first uh, logical uh, people to be linked uh, with uh, taking that team over. Unless, and just remember yeah. as well that it's alleged or understood that they bid on Force India yep. and bid at a value higher than ultimately Lawrence Stroll's family did, but they weren't interested in saving jobs and bringing that company out of administration. They just Mm -hmm. wanted the asset that was the Formula One team. And ultimately, they went in a different direction. But uh, they're very hungry for an F1 team. You're absolutely right. Well, I mean, they even took that. That one even went to the courts. Ultimately, you know, the the whole case that they tried to push forward uh, was not, uh, didn't succeed. But uh, yeah, they're they're certainly very keen on owning a a Formula One team. Hey, let's take another break here, Mark. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, teams that are done and not done with the developing their cars over the the course of the re- remainder of the season we'll do so in just a moment so don't go away we'll be right back All right. Well, welcome back to the show. So team number one that is not done yet or not done quite yet with uh, upgrading their 2021 car is McLaren. So they said that they are, or Andreas Seidel team principal says that they're still going to continue with the updates uh, in, in in an effort to stay ahead of uh, Ferrari or uh, beat them in the Constructors' uh, uh, Championship uh, this year. And obviously, this is going to be a real trade-off because we've got this whole new era of Formula One coming uh, next year with the brand new cars. So there's obviously, uh, you know, a big risk in, uh, you know, how much uh, time and how much uh, personnel and resources that they commit to to this current car in, uh, you know, and and pull away from next year's car. But I think that's interesting because, you know, when you sort of, you you put that up against the other team that's uh, basically uh, come out and said that they're not going to focus anymore on this year. It's the McLaren's number one rival, and that's a Ferrari. So McLaren says that they're going to throw more resources in to to beat Ferrari, and Ferrari's like, meh, we're about 90 to 95% focused on next year's car. It's not like uh, they're going to uh, completely throw the towel in on the year, but uh, Laurence Mikis, who's the the, the sporting director for Ferrari Formula One, says that uh, they're really focused on the development of next year's car, and uh, they're they're not going to compromise compromise that approach in any aspect just to try and stay ahead of McLaren this year. So I guess McLaren is seeing that opportunity to uh, get ahead of uh, Ferrari and the constructors and the associated financial reward. But I I think it's really interesting that's these two contrasting stances that both of these teams who are direct rivals with one another are taking. Ferrari obviously taking more of a long-term and mid-term view and uh, McLaren 
focusing a little bit heavier on the short term, but also with an eye on the future as well. I think with McLaren, there's also an economic necessity to being successful this season and finishing <clears throat> ahead of Ferrari. And ultimately, the amount of money that is paid to you from uh, the championship is driven at least in part by how you finish in the constructors championship. And if you finish third, you're going to get a greater payout than if you finish fourth. And yep. the challenge for McLaren, and we've discussed this at length over the last five or six months, is there's not been economic uncertainty, but there's certainly been economic stresses and pressures placed on that team from a road car division perspective. They've had to lay off people. They've had to sell the McLaren Technology Center with a leaseback agreement. They've had to do some things to free up capital. So I think for them, securing capital this year from the championship is important. But likewise, the better they finish in the championship, the easier it is for their sales team to go and drum up sponsorship agreements for this team. And I think from a McLaren perspective, or from a Ferrari perspective, you know what? The difference of five to 10 to 15 million dollars this year is is almost negligible for that team their 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 sponsorships are secured they're a highly profitable lucrative organization i think for them they have the they can afford to have more of a long-term outlook and ultimately Mm -hmm. this year if we finish fourth great if we finish third great but ultimately we want to put our resources towards building a car that could compete for a championship next year. Whereas McLaren, like, hey, we need the cash infusion that's going to come with finishing third in the championship this year, which is also going to enable us to chase some bigger sponsorships. So I think the priorities are very different for those two teams. Yeah. And with Ferrari, it's completely in line with what they've been saying probably for what, the last 18 months that they don't really expect to be in the position to uh, compete for a championship until 2022, 2023, somewhere in that window. So they're sticking with that vision and they're, they're not deviating from that in public anyways. But it's interesting too, because as you were talking there, I just um, brought up a picture of the uh, the MCL 34, this year's uh, McLaren. And when you look at, there's there's a number of really big name sponsors on there. There's Gulf, there's Coca-Cola, there's Dell, there's MN, uh, sorry, MSN, NBC, just to name a, a couple right off the top. But the one thing that really you know strikes me when I look at that car is that there's still a lot of empty space that uh, you know you could slap a nice couple big logos on there so if you're you're mclaren and you're thinking that you know you want to sell some real estate to to, to potential sponsors you know you've got a lot of space on your car that you could do it so you know being in that uh, you know that uh you know, in that sort of mindset and uh, getting a better uh, position in the in the championship and maybe getting more time, screen time, because you got a bit more competitive uh, time that absolutely makes it a lot easier to pitch from their, their sales and marketing people to potential sponsors. And we alluded to this on Twitter over the last couple of days. It looks like McLaren has some sort of announcement coming this Sunday and that they briefed some members of the media who also teased that there's something coming on Sunday, but they couldn't speak to it. It's understood. It's some sort of sponsorship agreement or arrangement. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see how that plays out. And of course, we'll retweet whatever happens on Sunday. But yeah, oh, you're not going to tell them now. You, Dude, not- I don't know if I knew I would share it on the air. Come on, don't be don't don't be so humble. I mean, we were going to wait till Sunday to announce the big. OK, I'm just kidding. It's not us. It's not our us, logo but- <laughs> is going to appear on the wing of the McLaren for the rest of the season. Yeah, if only. Right. But yeah, no, that'd be really cool. So, I mean, that's one thing that uh, I've 
been looking out for. I mean, the one thing that uh, that some of these uh, marketing uh, types in uh, in Formula One do is tease very well. I mean, uh, the the Aston Martin people did a phenomenal oh. job over the win the, over the winter. Unfortunately, the car just did not live up to the hype uh, thus far. But uh, you know, certainly, I mean, they've been do- they did a great job. McLaren also teasing as well. So, anyways, uh, let's uh, move on to the next one. Sticking with the uh, Ferrari. And uh, they, uh, Matteo Bonato believes that the team's performance at uh, at the Spanish Grand Prix last weekend proves that they have, uh, you know, overcome what he called race day weaknesses seen earlier this season. So is he basically saying that they're back? I, I feel like I want to say that Bonato is saying that uh, Ferrari's back, but he's kind of not really overtly saying it. You know, he's just saying, well, okay, we're, we're proves we're no longer having the same weaknesses as before. So it's kind of not an admission, right? Yeah, we'll see. It's it's early, and I think we have reason to be excited about how Ferrari's performed so far. I mean, they've scored uh, points finish, I think. And let me just check here. Yeah, it, it, week one, a sixth and an eighth, and then a fourth and a fifth, and a sixth and eleventh, and then a fourth and a seventh. I think their performance so far is probably exceeding the expectations of most analysts. I think you and I talked when we did our preview show that they could be a bit of a sleeper, a dark horse, and I think they're probably slotting in exactly where we expected them to be. I think the challenge with Ferrari last year was there was a whole bunch of different issues, right? They had drag issues, they had performance issues, and then ultimately they had driver issues, they mm-hmm. had team chemistry issues, and they've solved a lot of those issues. The power unit seems to be in a better state, the drag issues seem to be reduced, there's no chemistry issues. And then the yeah. other challenge that they had last year as well is they had some reliability issues, they had strategy issues, they had pit issues, everything kind of fell apart, and it just seems to be a more cohesive organization this year, and that's helped help drive 60 points in the championship after four races. Yeah, I think that they should be pretty pleased with where they are right now. I mean, obviously, it's not at the front of the pack uh, leading the way and leading the championships. But I I think that after the disastrous two-thirds of 2020, I mean, they really didn't turn it around and look even remotely competitive until the last several races of the year and it was just it was just discouraging because at one point they were almost on pace with uh you know comparably with the williams compared to you know where, where they should be right and they they've turned it around slowly but surely and like you say i mean one of the big things is that uh, the chemistry between the two drivers is uh completely uh you know it, it's much improved and i think that uh science i i don't want to say that maybe he's the most underrated driver of the year so far but i, I think maybe he gets in that uh, conversation i think that maybe maybe sort of a sleeper maybe somebody we expected to take a little bit longer to feel more comfortable at a new team in a new car because i mean we've seen everybody else that's with a new team this year struggle to a certain extent but for science that that learning curve doesn't seem to have been as steep for say perez or some of the rookies or for sebastian vettel i mean vettel obviously is dealing with car issues as well but but science to me seems to have struggled less in adapting to a new team than say or even like Perez or Ricardo for example that's a really great observation and probably something that we haven't given him enough credit for right which mm-hmm. is he he made the transition like a lot of drivers did in the offseason from one team to another so he had to learn a new factory a new culture a new chassis and a new power unit maybe i think one of the things that's benefited him is that this isn't the first time he's made a move from one car to another car from one power unit to another power unit so he's done that before but you're right 
I, and again, his performances have been okay. An eighth, a fifth, he finished out of the points in Portugal, and then he rebounded to seventh in Spain. So it's been a solid performance. He's got 20 points in the championship. He he looks pretty good. He's certainly improving. Um, and I think his performance and his start probably could have been better if he had more th- than three days of winter testing. Mm-hmm. But to be fair, the same could have been said for the whole field. But yeah, quietly putting together a, a reasonably strong finish. Now, that said, he only has half this championship points that his teammate, Charles Leclerc, has, who has yeah. finished sixth, four, sixth, and four since... Finished just off the podium. Well, actually, I shouldn't say just off the podium. On paper, he finished just off the podium. But in reality, it was more than 10 or 20 seconds back. But ultimately, I think this is probably where Ferrari would have expected to see him after four four races. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the the Drivers' Championship, he's currently eighth, 20 points, four points behind Danny Ricciardo, which you would think would be the next driver that he'd really be competing with. And then he's 12 points behind Sergio Perez, who has 32, which is obviously... You know, not a sufficient amount of points for, for a guy that's uh, driving that 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 car. But I mean, when you look at it in the standings like that, that you know he's behind both of those drivers, but still, I, I think that he's been a little bit more, I guess, a little bit more consistent, a little bit more reliable. And like I said, to me, it seems like he struggled less than those other two. Now, you know, wh- whether or not he can really build upon those building blocks over the first uh, four races and, and do something with that and maybe pass uh, Ricardo or challenge uh, Perez. I mean, I keep thinking at some point Perez has got to turn it around and figure this car out and, and really do a more solid uh, job and, and do what's expected of him. But uh, certainly Sainz, I think, is, um, I think he's one that we need to keep an eye on moving forward. Okay, well let's uh, let's move on to the next one, and this is a uh, you know I, I can see you wanting to start pulling your hair out uh, now, and uh, this is uh, Sebastian Vettel at Aston Martin. I mean, both of you and I were really looking forward to seeing what Aston Martin could do, uh, you know, build upon that uh, racing point uh, from last year and build uh, you know an, an Aston Martin branded car. It's been very disappointing, and Seb is just uh, admitting he's flat out saying that he he doesn't have the pace currently to really fight for points. And uh, this was, uh, you know, comes on the heels of what he said was another frustrating weekend last weekend in Spain. And, uh, well, it's, it's hard to disagree with that. I mean, I, I mean, Lance has had some points finishes here or there, but they haven't really been, you know, we would have expected him to finish higher up. I mean, based on what we saw last year, it's just a frustrating situation to watch. And, and Lance, I think, has got a bit of a benefit because he's getting the updates a little bit earlier than Sebastian. But regardless if it's Vettel or Stroll, it's it's just a bit painful to watch this team at the moment. I guess ultimately their biggest challenge is, and you're absolutely right, during the offseason— I was buying a ton of Aston Martin stock, not literally, but emotionally, <laughs> psychologically, I was, I was all in an Aston Martin. Yep. But I think the challenge is that they went into 2020 and they brought out this challenger that obviously in a lot of ways cloned, fundamentally cloned the Mercedes car of 2019. And the challenge is, while that was great last year and it helped them win a, a Grand Prix, we move into 2021 and the regulation changes changed again. And unfortunately, the car that they brought last year if was brought back to the grid this year, but it's fundamentally incompatible with what would denote or what would uh, generate a great racing car this year. So they're in this bad place where ultimately the car that they have last year isn't compatible with the regulations this year. It's creating all kinds of issues with aerodynamics and drag and all these other kind of pieces. And then ultimately the cars just aren't competitive. And you and I have talked about this before. I don't see a way out 
of this for them this year, no. given the limits that they have on resources and whether they even want to invest a lot of energy in this car, or whether they want to focus on 2022. And it's, it's funny too, because they're not bad enough that you could talk about them in the context of the NBA being a lottery team. Like in the NBA, you're either a top four, a top eight seed, and you're competing for a championship or you're a lottery team. And if you're either of those, you get a lot of exposure. But if you're that <clears> team that's kind of 16 to 24, you're kind of in this no man's land. And Aston Martin's kind of there right now where they're not so bad that they're laughably broken at the bottom of the championship, but they're not even in a position where they can reliably compete for points. And I think it's unfortunate because one, the cars look incredible on the track, but yep. there's no reason to show them on the broadcast. So ultimately <laughs> they don't. I, I'm frustrated with the situation. And I think what I'm struggling to understand from Vettel's comments here is is he saying he doesn't have pace because of the car or because he's not necessarily bringing that pace? But ultimately, while Lance is outperforming him, he's not that much ahead of him, at least in the last couple of Grand Prix. And, you know, Vettel outqualified him a couple of races ago. So I think fundamentally it's the car. I think he's becoming more familiar with the package, but maybe that doesn't matter if the car is just not that great. Yeah, and you raise a really good uh, point too when you say like uh, how much are they really investing and in, in, and how much are they committed to uh, developing this car? Are they really focusing now on 2022 when it really is going to be uh, an Aston Martin in its own right rather than a rebranded and rebadged uh, racing point? Totally, and I think now more than ever, last year was not a fluke, but a bit of an anomaly. They caught lightning in a bottle. They cloned the car from 2019. That yep. was very successful. It led to some great success last year, and they would have finished third in the championship if not for the 15 points that were, I shouldn't say stolen, but taken from them because of the brake duck situation. And then because of the way that the championship played out this year, the fact that they basically had to roll back last year's cars— there were regulation changes and suddenly the car that was successful for them last year can't be successful based on the regulations that are imposed in 2021. So, you know, uh, timing. my expectations for them this year and call it naive, call it wishful thinking, call it whatever you will. But at minimum, I expected them to be in the same position where they left off last year. And that oh, would totally. have been fighting with the Ferraris, fighting with the McLarens. And actually, I was hoping that perhaps that gap to the Red Bulls and the Mercedes were it was lessened a little bit. But this whole... You know, this whole uh, setback that they've been dealt with the arrow rules for this year has really impacted them in a big way. And yeah, it, it's disappointing. I was really hoping to, I mean, I'm going to cheer for Lance regardless because, you know, he's Canadian uh, guy. So we're always going to cheer, cheer for the home team, right? Cheer for the hometown uh, guy. But it, it is a frustrating one uh, to see. Anyways, uh, Mark, let's take a, a little bit of a quick break here. And then we, when we come back, um, Gunther Steiner has had some stuff to, to say about uh, Total Wolf. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And yes, you know, th th this is funny. Uh, well, maybe it's not funny. Maybe it just uh, proves I'm a little bit weird. But anyways, when I saw this article about uh, Gunther Steiner, T. Principal of Haas, talking about Total Wolf and how Toto wanted what he called a little bit of uh, publicity when he got on race radio over the weekend to complain about uh, the blue flags and Nikita Mazepin holding up his cars and everything like that. 
you know, I, I can't help it. And maybe it's DTS. But every time I, I read a Steiner quote, I hear his voice in yes, my head. Too, you know, I, I don't know what it is. And I don't necessarily get that uh, when uh, you have other uh, team principles like like um, Total Wolf has a very strong accent, maybe not quite as strong as Gunther's, but still, I, I don't know. He's always been one of the, the sort of standout personalities in uh, in Drive to Survive. I mean, he's uh, obviously a quite... Uh, quite pointed in some of his uh, comments. Uh, anyways, um, what uh, Gunther had to say was, quote, I didn't hear the message. They just told me in the debrief that Toto said something, but I don't know exactly why and what he, uh, for he said that. So I cannot comment because I do not know the circumstances, but I think Nikita did a good job uh, today to get out of it. Maybe Toto being Toto just wanted everything or wanted to make sure that uh, he's here showing who is in command here and that everybody should move when he's coming along, you know? He put himself on the radio and didn't let his guys do the work. He wanted a bit of pu- a little bit of publicity i guess so yeah and Toto needs publicity. <laughs> i don't know I'd, I'd love to hear the actual quote because the way that, uh, that, that i read this almost sounds like a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek you know like, like if you read the the, uh, the 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 headline it seems a little bit cheeky it seems like a little bit uh you know, a little bit, almost putting Toto down a little bit when you, but when you actually read it, it it comes up as a very, it doesn't seem very serious. It seems like a very lighthearted kind of, um, kind of brushing it off kind of thing. Like, oh yeah, well, whatever. It's just maybe you wanted some publicity kind of thing, right? Yeah, I totally, uh, totally agree. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny too, because we're conditioned and obviously for many, many, many years, not necessarily live, but we've always heard snippets of the driver pit communication. So you'll hear how Hamilton five times a race talking about how his tires are done, his tires are done, his tires are done. You'll hear a lot of the drivers complaining about Mazepan getting in their way, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but by all accounts, this was the first time on the F1 global feed that a message from race or race, a message to race control from one of the teams has been aired. So I think what Gunther Steiner is saying here is that this entire situation was manufactured, that obviously Toto knew that during the broadcast, they were going to broadcast a conversation between race control and one of the teams and that Toto injected or inserted himself into the microphone to make sure that it was his comments that were heard. So it's kind of speculative. It's kind of conspiratorial, but it's also just kind of funny that Gunther Steiner of all people is criticizing <laughs> Total Wolf for seeking attention when Total Wolf gets all the attention and glory and glamour he possibly needs. And Gunther Steiner himself is a bit of a, I don't want to call him a, a bit of a clown, but he's hes obviously opinionated and very authentic and very real. And I also have that same issue that you do, which is every time I read a Gunther Steiner quote, I hear the voice, but I also hear the quote prefaced by 17 F words and concluded with 14 more F words. Because if you've watched Drive to Survive, <laughs> he's he doesn't hold back on the cursing, which I actually kind of appreciate as well, because I, I just appreciate that he could be authentic. But yeah, I yeah. thought this whole thing was kind of funny. Yeah, I did too. I thought it was kind of funny, uh, j- just the way that they did it. But you know, it's funny too, because we never really hear like Toto on the race radio, like period. And I kind of wondered that too, when I heard that, and I read this article too, it was just like, how manufactured was this? Like, what was this the, um, you know, the, the, the producers picking up on the fact that people oh, have been, totally. been focusing and complaining about Mazepin, and there's this sort of this, this thread about him being, you know, like the not most experienced driver. He's a slow driver, you know, we, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit. And uh, I, I thought, uh, too, that, uh, you know, perhaps, just perhaps, that there might have been a bit of a, oh, this is the perfect soundbite to grab. You know, Toto is on the radio right at the perfect time. Let's air totally. this one, you know. Totally. And uh, unfortunately, I 
wish we could get more of those, uh, you know, Gunther Steiner F-bombs on race radio. But I, then again, I guess that's not really uh, family friendly <laughs> in, the, in the course of a normal uh, race uh, broadcast. Anyways, let's talk now about um, Sergio Perez, who said that the compressed uh, time that he had in the testing schedule over the winter is really, uh, it's really holding him back in the season uh, so far. And he said he feels, uh, you know, I feel that this is a bit of an understatement. He said it feels like it's taking him too long to get up to speed in the Red Bull uh, this week, or sorry, this year. And I I totally agree. I mean, I don't think that there is any doubt that uh, this switch to Red Bull, the fact that he had limited time, just like everybody else, has really hurt him more. And like I said uh, in the beginning of the show when we were talking about it, that it kind of makes me wonder that if they stick with this, uh, uh, you know, compressed testing schedule, whether that will maybe... <clears throat> influence, I guess, is the, the word that I'm looking for. Drivers and moves that they're making rather than just uh, jumping from one team to another. I mean, drivers will change all the time, but maybe I'm wondering if drivers will start to think, maybe take a second guess on whether they're doing the right thing, knowing that uh, I'm in a good spot right now, but if I uh, if I switch, I'm only going to have three days to test a car over the winter or whatever it might be. And do I really want to set myself further back in, uh, in in order to move forward at another team? I think that's a really great question. I think it maybe doesn't apply to Sergio, and you know this, <clears throat> obviously, in this circumstance, because he was in a situation where he didn't have a choice, where ultimately yeah. his future was predetermined because the Force India slash Racing Point slash Aston Martin team had already made an agreement to bring in Sebastian Vettel, despite the fact that he was in the middle of a three-year contract. But I think you're right. If I'm a driver and I'm in a really good situation and there's an alternative lucrative offer, maybe I maybe I weigh the pros and cons and just stay where I am because you're right. The cost to my career of struggling through the first four or five races, trying to adjust to a new team, a new car, a new chassis, a new power unit could be pretty devastating. We we alluded to this earlier in the race, but historically winter testing in Formula One has been as much as two weeks, two four-day weeks. So you would potentially get eight sessions to become familiar with a car. And there used to be in-season testing and all of these different opportunities. But again, the teams agreed with the new cost cap, with the new Concord agreement, that three days of winter testing were going to be the norm. They all agreed to this. Now, the drivers may not have been a part of that decision, but the teams agreed and they needed to have understood what the knock-on effects were going to be. Now, in terms of Sergio, again, we talked about this last week, man. Like, he's not a young driver. He's 11 years deep in this journey. He's been with three different teams, four different teams, a multitude of different chassis and power units. He was around in the V8s. He's been around for the hybrid era. He doesn't have as much of an excuse, I believe, as Gasly and Albon in, in terms of adapting to this car. And I know we talked last week and we alluded to the fact that, hey, maybe there's just something really unique or there's some characteristic that makes the Red Bull car very special and challenging to drive if you're name isn't Max Verstappen, but Mm -hmm. like one of our listeners, uh, Randy called out, the reality is prior to Albon and prior to Gasly, they had another driver in that car and Daniel Ricciardo who had no control, no issues piloting that car to race wins. So ultimately I think it's on Sergio at this point and he needs to figure this out. Yeah, especially for like you say, for a guy that uh, that that's uh, over a decade deep into his Formula One career, that you would expect. Yeah, sure. Initially, you might be having some challenges, but uh, you know, almost a quarter of the way into the season, you would think that those challenges 
and those issues that he's dealing with would be uh, pretty much uh, solved uh, by now. And hey, Mark, just to, just yep, to add one more thing on there too, he's got a one-year deal. So yep. nobody needs to put any more pressure on him than he's putting on himself. One-year deal and it's done, potentially. Yeah, potentially. And that's uh, that's a great point because uh, that makes you wonder if uh, some of the issues that he, that he has or, or he is having is maybe self-inflicted just because the amount of uh, pressure he's heaping on himself to get it right and deliver what uh, Red Bull and, and and he expect that he can do with that car. So that that is uh, you know a great point. I mean we're we're going to have to watch this uh, because certainly the longer that this drags on for you know, obviously doesn't uh, play out well for him in terms of uh, trying to go back and get another contract out of these guys. But then again, you know, we, we have the circular converse, conversation when it comes to, to, to Red Bull. We've been having it almost every year now since Ricardo left at the end of uh, 2018, that if, uh, you know, if they don't bring back Perez next year, who are they going to bring up to that team instead? You know, are they going to try and bring Gasly back? Do they have somebody else? I mean, you know, Perez is the first guy that they basically brought in from outside that uh, that organization. So it uh, <laughs> it's kind of fun to talk about because it's a st- it's a story that kind of keeps on giving. But uh, it, uh, it it certainly is. Uh, there, there's no shortage of fuel for this fire. Let's put it that way. Totally. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next one. I'm trying to speed this up because I know you're trying to get to MotoGP Corner. So no, I've I, been waiting to get to Bendy Wings. That, that's okay. the highlight of the show for me okay. today is well, Bendy I, yeah, Wings. I was going to talk about the Bendy Wings because you, you brought it up uh, because the, the article you sent me, the uh, the I guess the lead in it was clamp down on flexible rear wings amid suspicions that some teams are bending the rules. And I love that because I was just like, you know, is is this a pun? Was this intended? Was this accidental? Because it's it, it's a brilliant way to, to describe it. And uh, well, let's talk about it in a moment. Let's just take one quick final break because then we can talk about bendy wings and we can talk about MotoGP and everybody can go home happy. And if everybody's <laughs> already at home, they can just stay happy. Anyways, so let's take that quick break and we'll come back in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the show and Bendy Wings. I'm not going to steal any of it. Mark, go for it. This is a great topic. And for those of you that aren't super interested in the technical side of Formula One, bear with me because I'm going to try to make this a little bit fun. So if you're new to Formula One, you're part of that Gen DTS, there's all kinds of fun stuff that happens on the track. The racing, the bumping, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot to talk about with drivers and, and their performance and driver personalities and all those kind of pieces. But one of the topics that always dominates the discussion in Formula One is the technical regulations of the sport. Ultimately, Formula One cars are, they're not prototype cars in the sense that Teams can do whatever they want from a design perspective, but it's closer to the prototype concept than potentially any other mainstream racing series in the world. That said, the cars are still highly, 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 highly regulated. And today in Nerd Talk, we're going to talk about the rear wing on the back of the cars. The rear wing on the back of the car serves a couple of purposes. One, it creates drag and two, it creates downforce. Drag is designed to slow the car down and downforce is designed to help keep the car stuck on the ground. If you were to take a Formula One car and you were to remove that rear wing and let it go wide open on a one or two kilometer straight, there's the very real risk that that car would take off from the ground. So the rear wing serves a fundamental safety purpose, but it also helps provide a tremendous amount of grip, especially in the corner. Now, from an F1 team's perspective, the challenge with a rear wing is that in a long straight, you want as much top line speed as possible. 
And that rear wing actually acts as a fundamental counterbalance because it actually slows you down. So from a regulations perspective, the sport likes that. They want to be able to regulate the top line speed of the cars, partly because of a safety concerns, but also because they want to create parity. Now, the challenge is teams have always been able to find ways to create some degree of flex in these rear wings. And the controversy that erupted over the last week was, and we talked about this last week, was Lewis Hamilton spent a lot of the race chasing Max Verstappen. And he came out and announced, hey, that rear wing on the Red Bull looks awfully bendy. Yeah. What he was yeah. referring to was that that top speed in straight lines, the rear wing was almost collapsing. It was almost sinking a couple of inches lower than it should have been. And by dropping down, it reduces the amount of drag that's being felt by the car, enabling the car to go faster. Now, the sport effectively outlaws this. Bendy wings are a no-go. But the sport has been... They've really struggled to challenge and to control this for a long time because the reality is you can't build a wing or you can't enforce a regulation that forces teams to adopt wings that have no flex because under full load at top speed, if the wings couldn't flex a little bit, they would effectively shatter. So what you find are teams, especially Red Bull, always find ways to push the boundaries of the regulation of the sport. And effectively what happened last week was Red Bull was caught. So there are some, there's some tolerances allowed when it comes to the flex in the wings, but it looks like Red Bull had ultimately been able to find a way to apply greater flex to the wing at top speed, which reduced drag, which allows the cars to go faster. Now, none of this may make sense to you, but I'm going to post a video on our Twitter that I encourage you to check out. But ultimately, the crux of the story is Lewis is following Max. He sees the wing bending more than it probably should, which allows the car to go faster, which I think is super, super, super interesting. Now, I'm actually a big fan of the teams pushing the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Again, there's there's a difference between straight up cheating, which is what Ferrari did in 2019. There's a straight up difference between what Renault did way back in the mid 2000s with Crashgate. There's a big difference between what McLaren was potentially trying to do with Ferrari with stealing plans and things like that in the late 2000s. But ultimately, in terms of pushing the boundaries of the regulations, I'm all in. I think it's the responsibility of the FIA and Liberty and F1 to be able to manage the development of the cars and the teams better than they have historically. We talked about this about a month ago, which is FIA is now going to start injecting inspectors into random teams at the end of each race to look for these kind of things. But ultimately, that's what the controversy was. Basically, in essence, they'd been able to develop a mini DRS solution without actually incorporating DRS. Yeah, it, it really is interesting. And I think you raise a great point. Uh, and, and I don't condone cheating either, but I, I find it fascinating that, you know, the, the FIA, they lay down all these rules for Formula One. This is what uh, you're allowed in terms of power units, aerodynamics, all these different areas that are very, very complex, very complicated, very difficult. And then, you know, you have to build a car within these parameters, right? But, you know, I don't see a problem with taking these rules and then interpreting them and finding a way to exploit them to your advantage legally. Totally. You know, but uh, then, you know, it, it, it is funny, though, that then the question becomes, you know, where is that line drawn in the sand? When does exploiting the rules become outright gaining an unfair advantage? And I think that's when we see these technical uh, directives and these clarifications totally. that we saw a whole raft of them back in 2019 when it came to the things like, you know, burning oil and all these different, you know, around that, that, that whole Ferrari engine controversy. So it is interesting, too, because, you know, 
Christian Horner, Red Bull's team principal, he's basically saying our cars are scrutinized. They're, they've been, you know, reviewed and examined and, you know, they've been looked at seven ways by, from Sunday by the FIA and they passed and the FIA is completely happy with the car. You know, I should mention that Ferrari said the exact same thing when it came to their power units in 2019, you know. So, you know, I'm, I'm not calling Christian Horner out or I'm not, uh, you know, questioning his truthfulness, but I, I'm just uh, drawing a parallel here that, you know, Ferrari, they did, uh, you know, ended up in this situation and they, you know, everybody was calling them out. I mean, I think it's interesting this time that Lewis is basically saying that, you know, Max's rear wing was, you know, what what he called bendy when it was when it came to Ferrari and uh, the issues that they were having. Max was the one that was calling them out and flat out calling them cheaters, you know. Totally. <laughs> so it totally. Just, it, it, it's kind of interesting, too, that it, it it's flipped around. And it's also amazing that, you know, to hear this coming from, from Lewis, because, you know, I don't discount like his authenticity and, you know, his motives for saying so. Like, I, I don't think that he would fabricate something like this just to you know as some sort of mind games and to try to drag you know his uh, opponents down into the muck I mean you know I think he's a better person and a better sportsman than that but you know it just it the, the whole situation is is fascinating because you know it's Lewis now following you know a, a rival I mean a couple of years ago it just would oh, so it would have been so counterintuitive you just you wouldn't expect it to, to come from somebody like that but you know it's kind of funny too it's just like well when I saw that commented Lewis commenting about the bendy wings I'm like well you know who's spent more time behind Max Verstappen's car over the, you know, not just this season, but previous seasons is Valtteri Bottas, the other Mercedes driver, (laughs) you know, and he didn't mention anything about Bendy. So, I mean, I'm not saying that there's any sort of silver tinfoil hat conspiracy going on there, but it just uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, really popped into my mind. But I thought it was interesting too, because that was a story we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Super Spy Lewis, right? That that one of the engineers that used to work for Mercedes just uh, pointed out that, you know, that fine eye for detail that Lewis Lewis has and little weird things that he would pick up and commented on uh, about like other teams are doing this and say, hey, guys, they're doing that. You know, like, what are we doing about this? What, whatever that uh, that issue might be. And I think that uh, this, uh, you know, this whole bendy wing thing about uh, the, the Red Bull, I think that's just another example of Lewis being Lewis and just having a very he's very astute and very good at uh, picking up and observing details. It's it's shocking that he was able to identify this because I don't think we can truly appreciate how little these drivers can see when they're in the car. Not only are you slumped down in the car, you're wearing a visor, which is covered in dirt and debris and bugs. You're Mm -hmm. trying to look through a halo and your car has fundamentally no suspension in terms of comfort. There's no cushioning in your seat. So you're vibrating along the racetrack. Yet he was able to identify that the car in front of him under full load had a rear wing that was slumping as much as an inch, maybe more it's remarkable and then Mm -hmm. and again i'll post it on twitter if you look at the video it's totally there it's clear as day that when under full load under full suspension load that wing sinks and then when it breaks and the suspension load is released the wing raises again it's it's absolutely crazy Mm. again the benefit to red bull here is that if your wing is bendy and it slumps it reduces drag which enables you to go faster and just to comment on this as well hamilton believes that that bendy wing was giving them an advantage of as much as three tenths of a second per lap which Mm. may not be a lot but that's a second every three laps like it's it adds up very very quickly but absolutely remarkable that lewis was able to spot that 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't have anything to add to that because like I said, I wanted to speed this along. I'm giving you 10 minutes now to go nuts on MotoGP Corner because you've been so patient about it. I know you're just bursting to to, to bring us all up to speed on that. You know, so I actually had a couple people reach out. Oh, and, and look, the time's learn- up. I'm sorry. The show's over. Ah, <laughs> I, I guess you're out of hard drive space. Yeah, that's right. That's it. That, that's it. Out of hard drive space. So if I'd known <laughs> I had 10 minutes, I probably would have planned a little bit more. But I had some really, really great questions and some folks that actually reached out to me via DM and things like that. And they're just like, hey, if we're going to have to listen to this MotoGP thing, can you at least provide a little bit more context to the sport and the championship? So I'm going to try and do that a little bit today. I think the best way to talk about MotoGP is in the Formula One context. MotoGP is kind of like Formula One, but with motorcycles instead of open wheel racing cars. The structure of the championship is very similar. Just like Formula One, they race on premier global circuits across the planet. Now, in fact, there's a lot of overlap. So a lot of the tracks that the Formula One cars race on, the MotoGP bikes also race on. And oftentimes it's the exact same track configuration. So if you watch Formula One and you watch MotoGP, you can actually see the two different types of vehicles racing on the same track, on the same configuration, which is kind of cool. So this year, the MotoGP championship has 19 races, which is about the norm. They typically, and I said this last year, the real base, the real foundation of the sport is in Spain, at least from a driver development perspective, they get kids starting on bikes as young as three or four years old. And then they take them through all the kind of the grassroots program. But in terms of the championship, there's a couple of drivers that I think are probably not necessarily transcendent, but probably worth understanding. The first driver and the, or the first driver, the first rider that I would probably speak to today is a, a driver named Mark Marquez. He entered MotoGP in 2013. He won the MotoGP championship in 2013, 2014, 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019. So in his short, well, probably not short history now, but in his history in MotoGP, he's already won six championships. And to put that into context, MotoGP is fundamentally different than Formula One when it comes to the demands of the driver. So the races are shorter. So a Formula One race is an hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes. A MotoGP race is probably closer to 40 or 45 minutes. And that's simply because the demands on the riders are exponentially higher than they are for Formula One drivers. And if you ever look at MotoGP highlights, it's not unusual over the course of the weekend, sometimes for these riders to fall off the bikes or take two or three crashes. And again, there's no chassis. There's no crumple zones around them to absorb that impact it's literally the riders skidding across the tarmac avoiding bikes and sliding through the gravel trap so it's a much more physically demanding sport so there's really two driver or riders that are worth watching one is mark marquez because he is absolutely the premium absolute champion of the sport right now and then the other is another rider named valentino rossi and valentino rossi is very 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 much at the end of his championship he entered MotoGP in 2000 he's won seven titles he won a title in 01 02 03 04 05 08 09 he came within a hair of winning the 2015 championship except for the fact that there was an incident between him and mark marquez at the penultimate or penultimate event the race before the final race He's also worth watching, but at this point, his career is really, really winding down. But in terms of talent within the sport, the two big names are Mark Marquez. He's historically raced with Honda and also 
Valentino Rossi, who's historically been associated with the Yamaha teams. Valentino Rossi is an incredible personality, incredibly charismatic. And just as we talk about Lewis being transcended in the context of Formula One, Valentino has been transcendent to this sport in ways that I don't think it could ever have imagined a rider could have been. And I would encourage mm-hmm. you, Google Valentino Rossi, take a look at his career, take a look at some of his uh, his racing wins on YouTube. He's very, very colorful. He's got a flamboyant personality. He's accessible. He's fun. He's jovial. Very, very cool. And then finally, from a team perspective, historically, the championship have been dominated by teams like Yamaha and Honda. Ducati, who is an Italian bike maker, has become much more competitive in recent years. And also some other Japanese manufacturers like Suzuki and ultimately some more European manufacturers like KDM and Aprilia have begun to become more relevant in the sport. But Mm. think about MotoGP as Formula One, but with bikes. Every team has two bikes. They have two riders. Very, very similar. And the structure of the championship is also very, very similar. So that's it for MotoGP this week. I'll give you a bit more of an update last week. But again, some folks had asked, just provide a little bit of context. If we have to sit through this gong show, there you go. Hey, I'm actually kind of shocked that you didn't mention the obvious tie-up between uh, MotoGP, Valentino Rossi, and Formula One, and the fact that Valentino did test for Ferrari, when was it, about six, seven years ago? Longer? Oh, I think I think it may have been about 2006. So Is it that Valentino long ago? Oh, my Rossi, gosh. It, actually, yeah. and you, I am so glad you brought this up. Valentino Rossi tested for Ferrari probably 10, 12, 15 years ago. The tests were incredibly successful. And it's understood he was very, very, very close to signing an agreement, not necessarily to race with Ferrari because Ferrari was relatively stacked back then. Michael Schumacher was still a part of the team and Raikkonen was around and Mm -hmm. there were some other great drivers, but he had an opportunity to have pursued a Formula One career if he wanted it. It just would have been a challenging and risky move given the fact that he was the current MotoGP champion and the entire sport basically revolved around him at that perspective. But you're right, in terms of a talent, he could have raced in Formula One if that's something he wanted to pursue. You absolutely cool. Hey, I just before we let everybody go, I just wanted to to bring up something I thought this was really interesting. Like uh, about a week ago, I sat down and I was looking at the stats. Uh, where are people listening and watching the show from? And this absolutely kind of blew my mind. The one thing that I was already uh, you know pretty aware of that our top uh, countries for for listenership over fifty percent of our listeners come from the USA. Uh, then I think it's about uh, twenty twenty five percent in uh, in Canada. No, actually, I think it's less than that. I think it's about fifteen percent in Canada, then the UK, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and then an, a nice broad range of like uh, everywhere else. I mean, the very strong uh, downloads and uh, and listeners all, all over Europe. But you know, the one thing that absolutely was kind of interesting is I tried to boil down, and I literally spent minutes out of my life on this, is how dedicated <laughs> I was, but I just went to sort the stats. So you want to know the number one location where we get the, the, the most listenership from is? I want to know. I don't know, but I'm, I'm super eager to know now that you've got that data. Well, it's it's New York City. New York City is the the, the hotspot. All of the the majority of our listeners, or the biggest percentage of our listeners, are in New York City, and uh, you know I think that's uh, kind of uh, kind of cool. I wish we had the rights to sign off the show with Frank Sinatra's "New York, New York," and I'm not going to torment everybody by my own pathetic rendition of that uh, classic song. But uh, <coughs> excuse me, regardless. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening or watching from, we appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got a million reasons why I want to visit the Big Apple. This is just uh, one of those, I, I wouldn't say it's the deciding thing, but certainly it's it's one of the things that when I get the chance to, and hopefully it's going to be sooner rather than later, that uh, it just makes that uh, that trip to New York a little bit more uh, enjoyable. 
I appreciate the 30 seconds you spent mining that data. That was fantastic. <laughs> and and while you're well asking spent. me questions, and I know we've got to sign off here because we're clicking in at hour number four, but I, I found a really interesting post on Reddit, and I apologies, I don't have the, the original poster's name, but somebody on Reddit had actually gone and done a really cool analysis of hmm. the inventory and pricing of all of the merchandise on the f1 team stores oh, to get okay. a sense of like how many items what's the average price etc cetera, etc cetera. now you and i know and if you don't know as a listener f1 merchandise is notoriously notoriously expensive basically it's expensive I, I think it's basically you think uh you know take whatever you think it, the, the item is that you want fair you've come out of a price what you think it's worth double it and then add some horrendous cost on top of it to ship it Totally. Oh, oh my God. And then customs in duty when it gets to North America because it's <laughs> typically worse. Chinese made shipping out of Europe. So we get hammered with customs. So yeah. an a $80 t-shirt typically becomes $220. <laughs> if you're going to buy F1 merch, it's cheaper to buy tickets to a race and buy it at the buy track, track. that is ordered online. <laughs> so here's a question for you. So they yep. did this fantastic analysis. So from the average price perspective, the average price of all the merchandise on the team stores, which team do you think has the most expensive merchandise? Ferrari. Ferrari is third cheapest at $69 really? US. Wow. So I'm going to run you through this because this is shocking. The cheapest is Red Bull at 63 bucks, followed by Mercedes at 68 mm -hmm. Again, pretty shocking given the fact that Mercedes is one of the most dominant teams and probably has a ton of demand for merch, followed by... Ferrari at $69, McLaren at $69, Alpine at $91, so pretty expensive. AlphaTauri, $93 on average to buy AlphaTauri merchandise. Aston Martin at $113, which you and I both know because that was the first thing we checked out and then we closed the website disappointingly. Yeah, <laughs> just as fast Williams. as I opened it. Williams has the most expensive merchandise in the sport. The average ticket price for a piece of Williams merch on the website is $120 US. Wow. Wow. On that note, oh my gosh. Yeah, on that note, uh, well, I mean, I, I don't have my wallet, my visa here anyways, but uh, you know, certainly I will not be perusing the Williams team store anytime soon based on that uh, shocking report. But interesting that somebody put that uh, all together. And on that note, I think that's uh, about uh, everything that we got. Thank you all very much uh, for downloading and listening to the show. Thank you for your emails, the tweets, the comments, everything. We appreciate it a lot. And, well, unfortunately, no race uh, this weekend, so we won't be back on Sunday night, but we'll be back uh, next week. And, uh, again, if hey, if you guys want to, instead of mailbag, if you want to record a short uh, voice message for inclusion in the mailbag, we'll, we'll play off some of those. We, we can do that. Uh, eventually, if we get the website up and running again, we'll find a, a little bit of a slicker way to do it. But if you want to record a voice memo, email it uh, to us at scooteriaf1pod at gmail.com or tweet us at scooteriaf1pod. And on behalf of myself and Mark Hamilton... Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you guys again very, very soon. Bye for now.